By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam and Golf. So today we have a guest with us. We're going to delve into a little mental side of the game and life in general. We have Dr. Brett McCabe. Brett, thank you for joining the Sweet Spot. Dude, it's awesome to be here, man. I'm a fan of you guys. Been in the circles with you for a long time and glad to finally get this lined up and executed. I've been talking about it for a little while. Likewise, I've seen your stuff for almost a decade, so it's it's been long overdue. And why don't you first introduce yourself, give a brief introduction for the listeners who may not know who you are. I think a lot of people do, but just in case. Yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, my PhD in clinical psych with a specialty in what we call behavioral medicine or health psychology, which is the interplay between medical and psychological conditions. I got there because I was a baseball player in college at LSU and struggled with some stuff struggled with some injuries and struggled with finding my own belief and confidence. And that led me to pursuing my doctorate degree and specialized through grad school. And I wanted to kind of understand the whole perspective of a human being, not just like sports only. I had a pretty good background in sports, having played college baseball and understood it, but I wanted to understand the other side. Did my internship at Brown, psychologist do a one-year internship, which is like a residency. And so I did that at Brown with the psychology program through the medical school up there. Got done. I'd worked with some athletes, but was really working in a variety of different settings. Got done and it was like, look, I got to get to work. I have two small kids. I went to work in pharma. I did research development, medical education, medical strategy, clinical trial research for eight years in the pharmaceutical industry. Last seven of it was field-based, which was a really great collaborative thing to do. It's, I served as a liaison between our medical research organization, our medical strategy, our sales and marketing, our legal affairs, our customers in the marketplace, our researchers. But that allowed me to work with athletes on the side. And I started working with golfers because I'm an avid golfer. Kind of took the pitching approach that my coach had revolutionized the pitching side in baseball, started applying it to golfers and thought, yeah, this is a nice little side business. I'll make a little extra cash. And those little side guys became number one in the world as amateurs and 
then it was players on the PJ tour. And so about 10, 11 years ago, I decided to go out on my own, left pharma, it was time and set up my own practice, had no idea it would result in what it is now. And so I've been out on the PJ tour for about 10, 11 years of about 12 players on the PGA Tour I work with. And I also am the sports psychologist and clinical psychologist in the athletic department at the University of Alabama. So I'll be tomorrow as we're recording this, I'll be on the sidelines for the LSU Alabama game. And then I consult with the Major League Baseball franchise and help them reorganize and set up their performance and clinical psychology programs and speak around the country. So I have a great job. You're a busy guy. Love what I do though. (laughs) So, Brett, you've written a number of books. You just, as we're recording this, you just released a new one called Kick Anxiety's Ass. Yep. And we're going to talk about anxiety today. We'll, we'll see how long we go on this and perhaps we'll get into some other mental stuff on the game. But I think there's a lot to uncover here. We've talked about anxiety on the show before, talked about my anxiety on the show before. I think it's one of the, I don't know if it's the most unfortunate or crappy human emotions we have, but it's not pleasant. It really isn't. So why did you write this book? Let's start there. Well, it's exactly because of the conversation you just had, right? I've had anxiety my entire life. I had my first panic attack when I was in grad school. Most people with anxiety walk around with it and they keep it in their pocket. They fight the battle inside. Clinically, we used to know like, okay, depression. We're not talking severe mental illness like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or things like that. But we had a lot of walking well, people who were functioning well, but maybe suffering from depression. And anxiety used to always maybe get the back, maybe a little bit of the secondary attention. The last 10 years, that's changed. And I get a lot of people come up to me and say, man, you know, I just, I got this anxiety about performing. I got this anxiety about my relationships. I got my, I just, I got this underlying angst inside me. And not a lot of people talk about it. A lot of people suffer from it. A lot of people are trying to manage it and trying to figure it out and I think have felt very much in the dark. And I decided to write the book because probably the vast majority of clients that come see me are suffering from some level of anxiety at some point in their life. And I've estimated that probably in my private practice, because I I just do performance work now, I don't do clinical work anymore, but I would say probably 50 to 60% of the clients I see in a variety of settings, I could diagnose with an anxiety disorder. And I started thinking, it was like, man... We got a major issue going on. I'm seeing anxiety rates just skyrocket. Then you saw the pandemic come in. That just threw gasoline on the fire. You have a variety of different standards that are out there. And I started looking. I was like, man, we got this really bad negative triad happening in our society right now, particularly among performing athletes, but really relates to a lot of people, which is this idea that our standards and expectations for what we think are way out of whack. I mean, people are like, well, you know, Tiger Woods did this. Tiger Woods is the greatest outlier in the history of sports. Tiger Woods is not the standard. Okay, Michael Phelps is not the standard. Simone Biles is not the standard. They're not the standard any more than Kim Kardashian is the standard. And social media and all the other facts have taken the extremes and tried to make them look like that's what the norm is. And what happens is it leaves a pretty big angst. And the only way we can resolve it is that we tend to get more perfectionistic. Perfectionism is a control mechanism that we utilize to face things that are out of our control. We control it and it works. And perfectionism works a long time, right? I mean, I hope my surgeon who did my surgery two weeks ago is a perfectionist. I hope the guys and the men and women who fly our airplanes are perfectionists. But the problem is you can't control certain factors of life. And even more than that, you can't control the factors that are running underneath us, right? 
and behind us. So this negative triad is this dynamic between unrealistic standards and expectations, this high level of perfectionism, and then mental exhaustion. Sounds like sounds like every golfer. <laughs> 100%. And that's funny, right? And, and that's the funny thing because golfers come in like, and I don't know why I was nervous. It's like- Golf just attracts these type of people, well, right? because we try to control it, right? And it's kind of like trying to control Vegas a little bit. And so people get caught up in what they think that they should do. And we'll talk about that in golf in a little bit, some of the myths. But anxiety is this thing where we have this the problem with anxiety is like being in pain. All you want it to do is be out of pain. Okay. You want to be pain free. Well, anxiety is never a pain free existence because it's always there. It's always under the surface and it has a really good function associated with it. Anxiety is increased energy to face an uncertainty of life. Okay. That's all anxiety is. It's adrenaline. The problem with it cognitively, mentally, is when we can't resolve where to do it, we can't resolve where to put it. We can't identify the true threat in our life because the uncertainty is filled with a bunch of unknown, unclear threats. When we don't know how to resolve it, the mind uses worry to continue to evaluate it, and it just gets in a loop. And so the mind works like a radar system. It's always out there trying to identify threat. And when it doesn't know, if it's just shy of 100% knowledge of threat, it continues to send energy to that level to continue to evaluate it. Okay, well, that's an external threat. What about an internal threat? If we feel like we have an insecurity, if we have a, a doubt, feel like we've upset people, we feel like we're not going to live up to the standards, we can never resolve those, but we can continue to send energy to it. And that's what anxiety and worry is all about. And, and so what happens is we live trying to suppress it. We live trying to push it back out of our life. And we have to learn the way we take control of it is we stand up in front of it. And we realize that it's never going to go away, but we use the energy for better, right? We use the energy to evaluate and to understand and stay anchored in the things that we know and the truths in our life and the truths in our process, right? Every one of us has our own unique process. So when we have increased anxiety, I try to tell my players is like, there are days that it thunderstorms, okay? And then there are days that it's beautiful. The weather is a daily reflection, and it represents the climate of the place we live. Right now in Alabama, it's 36 degrees today, okay? But the climate during the winter here or the fall is that it's a little bit more volatile. You have bare swings in temperature, and you can have some thunderstorms. And it's not uncommon to have tornadoes this time of year because of the volatility coming through. So when we have a thunderstorm day, and it's wet and rainy and cold, I shouldn't be shocked that it's that way. Now, if you're in Vegas and it's 100 degrees and sunny, okay, you know that it's going to be a clear day. It's great. So what a lot of times we do is we take the weather, our emotional weather of the day, and we make big assumptions based on it. Oh my God, I cannot believe it's raining. Oh my God, I can't believe it's this. Versus going, hey, wait, you know what? It's raining. I just got to take an umbrella. I'm having an anxiety day. Okay, we good. I'm high stress today. Okay, great. Having a hard time focusing. Awesome. And what I found is how I kind of turned anxiety to be more effective for me was when I realized that I'm the ultimate player in the game. I don't have to be played by anxiety. I can start using it. And it's not like I've solved it. You never solve the anxiety puzzle, but it's good. It helps me stay on top of what I do with my players and things like that. And so that's why I wrote the book. You mentioned control, which I, you know, the more I think about golf and I think golf has been one of the best teachers in life was that, you know, as I, 
made my journey through golf and helping other golfers, like I think it ultimately boils down to this. It's a game that tests our perception of control. And I think most people think they can control way more in golf than they actually can. And it just leads to this never ending fight. And that's, you can transfer that over to life as well. And, you know, the more I can kind of file away different sections of control, like these things are within my control and these things are not within my control. When you make that distinction and focus obviously on the things you can control, obviously this is cliched age old advice, but I still think it's like, I don't know if it's the thing, it's one of the top things to get right in the game. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with your clients about control in general and how it relates to anxiety a little more? hundred percent. So what makes golf so unique? is that we perceive we have a lot more control over it than we really do, as you said. Because we have taught, and I'm speaking to two experts in the in the physical game, because we can measure it doesn't mean we need to teach to it. And what's happened is in the mental, in the technical game, because we can dissect it and break it down, we've gotten all giddy about certain things and lost the playability, I think, of a lot of things. Okay? Well, if we have uncertainty, we're going to go out and play a money match later, let's say. Okay. And we're going to make it where it makes us uncomfortable, where I don't want to say I came home and lost that amount of money, or I'm going to play in a club championship and my name is going to be on that board, or I'm going to play in a qualifier. As I'm sitting there, as I'm leading into it, our brain moves into a new phase. It moves into competition phase. We have to let go of the training phase, the preparation phase. Well, as we're facing that uncertainty, Nobody ever sits there and goes, oh, I'm going to be the greatest player that's ever played the game. I can control everything that happens out there. I know exactly what's going to happen. Okay. Because golf, and I use this as a really, really terrible example, but just follow me here. If we take a look at correlations, and we're going to kind of play causality. But we take a correlation coefficient and say, let's say that your ability to influence the outcome in golf is about a 0.5. In behavioral science research, that would be massive, okay? But engineering, that would be low. But in behavioral science research, that would be very high. So 0.5. So about 50% of the outcome would be within our influence, right? So that's not much, really, when you think about it. Well, there's another statistic that we follow called variance accounted for, which is a correlation coefficient squared, which means now the variance around my mean, we're only really accounting if we say the correlation is 0.5, we're only accounting for 25% of the variance based on our factors. That means there's a lot of stuff out of our control. Okay. So very convoluted way to say that. But what happens is the only way we can exert control is then we start evaluating it and we start poking holes in it. Well, I don't know how I'm going to play. I mean, it's struggling with a left miss and, you know, four of the holes have left, have water down the left side. Okay. So I've got a pre-shot routine. I want to make sure I hold the club face open. I want to make sure that I cut it. You see how we're starting to exert control. And we start picking on it, right? And so what happens is we take, we try to take the training period and place it in the competitive period as if we're going to validate all the work that we've done. So what's the number one question I get? Why can't my range game transfer to the competition? Because they're two separate environments. One environment has tremendous amount of control with very low consequences, training. Competition has extremely high consequences, very little control. And anytime there's a lot of control, we lose control. We try to find control where we can. And so we tend to get caught up in mechanics 
feels, needing to feel a certain way, all the factors that unravel our ability to compete and be flexible in a competitive environment. So one of the examples that I use for my players is it's like when you're going to play golf and play a round of golf in a competitive round of golf, it's like riding bulls. I don't know what bull is coming out of the gate that you're on today. Your job is you have to ride it and direct it. But the minute you try to exert control over it, it will buck you so hard. <laughs> I love <Okay>? that. <laughs> and the thing about it is, is that great bull riders understand how to use the rhythm and the flow. I had a really great guy on the call yesterday that I was working with and he was an executive and he's like, I don't understand, you know, first six holes, I just play like crap. And he had way too high expectations. He practices all the time. He can't understand why he can't do what he trains and practices. And I shared with him a story of a buddy of mine, a dear friend of mine who was a, a former Navy SEAL. And he told the stories like the first time I was ever deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq, I can't remember where he was. He said, you know, you got two years of training, right? And we're flying in and we're flying in on the C-130s and all of a sudden they, they yell at us, combat landing. He said, I think we're under attack. I didn't realize that a combat landing is the standard when you're in combat zone. Like I'd never been there, never been there before, right? And I may have just ignored that during training. And he said, if you've ever been in a combat landing, you pretty much go from 20,000 feet to the ground and as fast as a way possible. And you bounce and you all this other stuff. And so he said, now my heart's just pounding. We get off the airplane. The, the older guys are like, hey, we're going to go get our gear and we're going to be back. You all get set up here. And he said, me and the other new guy look over and we're like, man, hey, you see that fence over there? You think that's a wire? And he's like, you know, we really thought that was the enemy wire, the wire. That was the definition between the enemy ground and the real and the protection, right? And he said, so we set up our full combat zone and we were all set up and ready to go. And about two hours later, the, the guys come back with the Humvees and everything. And he said, the older guys just start laughing. I'm like, what the hell did you do? He's like, what do you mean? He goes, we're in the middle of the base, man. <laughs> he says, we're like miles away from conflict. That's what happens in competition. We misread things. So the first time you hit a bad shot, right? Oh my God, I got to, man, I, I feel like I'm sliding too much. I got to stay static over the ball. I got to close down the club face. I got to, it's like, wait a minute, you just hit a hundred balls on the range and you didn't do it one time. Why does our mind go there? Well, pressure and stress is the ultimate equalizer. So if I take a cup and I fill it, it's got holes in it, but there's nothing in the cup. The cup is a fully functioning cup. Nothing wrong with it. It's doing its job. It's not until you put water in it does it expose the cracks and the holes. Pressure. Well, in competitive golf, pressure impacts the way we think. So people are going to have what? More negative or positive thoughts. They're going to have more negative thoughts. More fear, doubt, insecurities are going to be highlighted. Risk, vulnerabilities, don't screw up. You know, like I, I love watching club championships at country clubs because guys play all the time and you put them in a club championship and now they every shot counts. It's not like you can rake back the three and a half footer. You know, now you have to post your score, right? People are like, man, I, you know, I've never hit the ball out of play here. It's like, well, yeah, welcome to a competition, right? It changes the way we move, and that's unique to us. People have different experiences of how they move. Some people take the club back faster, quicker, shorter, whatever. Okay. It's unique to us. Changes our decision making and our processes. You know, people break down their process. It's like, hey, you know, why don't you do this when you're under pressure? It's like, well, I didn't even realize I wasn't. And then it changes our grittiness, our ability to fight. And so, what makes golf tough is that we're trying to ride a bowl by controlling it and we're not using it as a reflective. See, I want us to take the round of golf and use it as a reflective to take those holes. So the other example I use is that we built a bridge over two canyons in a canyon over two 
cliffs. We don't build the bridge from the engineers and go, God, this is the greatest bridge we've ever built. I think it's ready. And I'm ready. And then you put that bridge in there and then they never come back and look at it again. What they do is they put the bridge in between and then they start running traffic over it and engineers are evaluating where the stress points are. And they don't go, God, Adam was the designer of the stress points. He's a loser. He sucks. They go, hey, Adam. So what's unique is now that we've put it into pressure in real world, it's taking some pressure in these two joists. What do you think we can do to support it better? And then they're constantly working and learning from experience. So the more we try to control it, the more we're trying to exert our desire over something, the reality of the fact is we got to create our process and dance with it a little bit. Long answer there, but there you go. Yeah, well, I think the hardest part about, I've been recently working on a book about competitive golf. And I think the hardest part about people who, and it could be matches against your friends or even club championships. I, I'm, I'm trying to write this in the context of the normal golfer. So I know the pressure can feel real to them. But I think the initial experiences people, when they first like add a layer of pressure as they expect performance, and I'm like, no, 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 you've just got to, as you said, you're, you're testing the bridge. You just got to learn and pay attention to what happens to you. And it can be horrible. <laughs> it can be fascinating if you have the right mindset. Be like, well, that was new. I didn't think about that during my Saturday morning round with my buddies. You know, I've found that the hardest thing to do is letting go of results and just kind of easier said than done, but just understanding that, you know, one thing that's helped me a lot is being okay with whatever's going to happen and knowing that I'll be fine no matter what and, and not clenching to the result, even though I'm thinking about it. That's a really aspirational desire, ultimate acceptance, right? But our ego doesn't allow us to do that. Okay. Our ego is where do we measure up against other people? I love it when people tell me, don't worry about what other people think. In the field of psychology, when other people don't worry about other people, we call them usually sociopaths, okay? Because they lack empathy with another human being. They, they can't connect. So we are built to worry about what other people think. We're built to worry or to, be, to have social status as a critical indicator of our overall functioning. It's part of our evolutionary growth strategies, Okay. So when people are like, yeah, I don't really care what I finish. I'm like, oh, whatever. Okay. Because when we go into that competitive environment, it shows, it highlights a differential to where we think we should be to where we are, which was the the reason why I wrote Break Free from Suckville, the previous book. But it's it's really about understanding that the competitive environment shines a light on every crack we have. And that's why the greatest players in the world, they're the best tournament players in the world. They understand the interaction with tournament pressure to themselves. And what we have to understand is that when we walk in that arena, it's not a validation. It's a competition. I hate when people say you compete against yourself. Don't compete against yourself. If you competed against yourself, you'd never win. You're competing against an obstacle course, the golf course. It's an obstacle course. It is an 18-hole obstacle course like the show Wipeout. You never know when that trap door is going to come and get you. But you have to continue to push and, and study and learn. And, and the more you put yourself in that situation, you know your reaction times. You know where things are important. You know where your risks are and so forth, right? When you appreciate that and you understand that that interaction is your personal interaction with the competition and that personal race, it changes it now. And so if people looked at a competitive tournament round of golf as 
a learning laboratory, not a validation zone, we would grow a lot better. But people don't because our ego wants us to, well, everybody played good. Everybody's telling you how great you are. Well, that's awesome. That's that's superb. Okay. Now you got to go do it again. So you got to do it again. And that's the hard thing. That's a hard thing to do is to continually answer the call and the bell. People don't stay at number one for long. I mean, Tiger did, but after that, we've been all over the place. And the reason for that is you got to learn how to play as number one. When everybody expects something of you and there's standards and there's expectations. But we have to find our relationship with that environment and try to realize that we're a work in progress. And if you can see it as that, then you have a chance to take the competitive environment and use it as a learning laboratory because there's no greater teacher than pressure and experience. Zero. None. Do you think so? The idea that ego is constantly making us compete with others. And I certainly, I, I completely believe that it's ingrained in our DNA. But do you believe we can, at least on a long-term level, change that slightly? Maybe not completely get rid of it. But, you know, say, for example, in social media, sometimes I'll see other instructors make a certain post and they'll get huge amount of likes for it. And, I'll, you know, I'll start comparing myself to them thinking, well, why can't I get that amount of likes? And, you know, then certain anxiety comes in. But through long-term philosophy, I've learned I can, I can lower that, but just by going through a logical process of, oh, well, this is why I'm feeling this way. It's just, you know, my monkey brain or whatever. And so what are your thoughts on that? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness, which is the last thing you want when you're playing golf. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It's used by Olympians, professional athletes, special forces like the Navy SEALs, health experts, and for people like you and me who just want to maintain their everyday health. Now that it's a bit colder out, it gets crazy dry and hydration is as important as ever. Element has a ton of delicious flavors. I've tried a bunch of them and they just released their new chocolate medley line, which allows you to enjoy Element Hot. You've got chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry to choose from, and they're all designed to be enjoyed hot. They also have a no-risk refund policy. If you don't like it, just send it back for a full refund. Now for our special offer for Sweet Spot listeners. If you want to give Element a try and get a free special gift, go to drinkelement.com forward slash sweet spot. Once again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash sweet spot. Sweet Spot listeners, we are back with an exclusive offer from one of my favorite clothing brands, Viore. I've been wearing Viore for years. I've got their shorts, Sunday joggers, t-shirts, button downs. I've become a little obsessed with this brand and I'm pretty sure you are not going to find more comfortable material. I guarantee it. So if you are sick and tired of your old workout gear and you want a new perspective on performance apparel, I recommend checking them out. Everything they make is incredibly versatile. You can run, lift weights, swim, do yoga, even play golf. Or like me, I wear some of their stuff out to dinner for weekend errands or mostly just lounging around the house. So if you want to give Viore a shot, we are going to give you a 20% off discount off your first purchase and you're going to get free shipping on anything over $75 with free returns. 
Go to viori.com, that's spelled V-U-O-R-I.com forward slash sweet spot to get your 20% off coupon. One more time, that's viori.com forward slash sweet spot. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. I think sometimes, so let's use that as an example, right? Social media. The reason social media is so powerful in our world today is it speaks to the elements that are so critical to us, which is social acceptance and social status. One of my favorite books is a book called Why Buddhism is True by Richard Wright. I can't remember. It's Robert or Richard. He's an evolutionary psychology lecturer or journalist or something, but he wrote Why Buddhism is True. And, and if you, you know, the original tenets of Buddhism is that suffering is the human experience. Okay. And then there's a variety of different concepts to work towards enlightenment, right? But really, the greatest enlightenment is when you realize that we all suffer. That's okay. Okay. There's two major drivers in the human brain. Number one is to keep you alive long enough for you to procreate. That's it. To keep you alive long enough to be able to allow your genes to move into the next generation. All right. So we don't want to procreate with lower functioning social status people. That's not good for our genes. Our genes have to move up the social ladder. Right. So you have to understand if you have those are the two major drivers in the, in the human brain, everything feeds either to stay alive or social status. So when you see somebody getting a lot of likes on social media, you're like, they're higher up on that social hierarchy than I am. I need to match that. Well, the brain sees that and goes, there's a mismatch. It creates cognitive dissonance, which means I need to resolve it. So the way that the theoretical way is I have to be better. But humans have evolved so long over years that it adds shame, guilt, and frustration to it. What am I doing wrong? Why am I such a loser? Well, the problem is when we see a strength of another human being, it almost always relates to an insecurity we have in our own self. When we fixate on somebody else's strength, it almost always relates to one of our weaknesses. If you had a super viral, if you had the most viral golf video of all time, okay, and somebody else posted one, you wouldn't see it as a threat. You would say, man, that was really good. Good job. You would focus on something else, right? But when we feel like it's a weakness, if there's just that little bit of insecurity there, well, social media drives that. It absolutely, the mechanisms and the algorithms absolutely create a constant insecurity there. Because think about it. The attention span is so short now, scrolling, moving on, the next shiny object, and it grabs our attention, right? What we have to look at is what is it that they did in that that I could emulate? That's a better way to look at it because you don't also understand how it got to all those likes. So we were saying before we went live, you know, I can't stand my field, the mental coaching field, mindset coaching from the business side is what they call it, right? I want to be an a-hole a little bit and put out one of those Halloween costumes of what a mindset coach is in business, which is like, <laughs> you've got a tan, you buy 100,000 followers on social media, you show what time you wake up in the morning, you show your stack of books that you've read that you don't remember what any of them say. We're going to attack that process, man. Don't forget about cold plunging. Oh, yeah, I got a cold plunge. Totally cold plunge. Show that. That's, right? that's just right off the bat. And my other one is... <laughs> Claim every client is yours. Okay. <laughs> that these people have sat through my workshops. I've shared the stage with these speakers. I'm like, it drives me freaking bonkers. Okay. And what got me was so when I first got into social media and started playing with it, I can remember I used to do Twitter audits on people. 
And I would look and say, it was like, well, 90% of their followers are fake. I mean, whatever. And people would be like, this guy's made. And I'm like, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And what got me was I heard somebody say like, oh, he works with so-and-so. I'm like, no, he doesn't. Like, well, how do you know? It's Because like, I actually do. And that's what got me. Pissed me off so bad. But I refuse to use my clients as my marketing basis. So I'll just put out content instead. Well, Instagram's a little bit more difficult, but there's a quick, easy way. So when, yeah, Adam, you talk about that. If you take a look at it, go into the comments. And AI comments now are very, they make it look like, dude, that is an awesomely smooth golf swing. Yeah, it's an AI comment. Okay. Yeah. And the, it's like the first 50 of them are right there and they reply to them. And I'm like, I don't know if they reply to them because people think that you should or whatever. But what I've realized, and this came from a conversation, name drop, but this came from a conversation I had with Ryan Holiday. So I'd gone over and spent the day with Ryan and Ryan and I will stay in touch behind the scenes and big fan of his books, Obstacles Away, Ego's the Enemy, Destiny, Discipline is the Destiny and so forth. And when he wrote Stillness Speaks, it was right when I was over there with him. And I said, does it bother you anything? I I said, you're like the most stoic guy I've ever met. Anything ever bother you? He goes, you know, Brett, he goes, I go give these talks and I look up on stage and they have another best-selling author. He said, I've never had a bestseller and I know what I've made and I know how many books I've sold and I've never ended up on a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. And I'm like, how in the hell is that feasible? Like your books are influential, majorly influential. And he said, it upsets me because I see those people walk up there and then I know what they're making for their speaker fee based on being bestsellers. And here I am making less, not on the prime speaking slot. And I know I've sold more books than they have. And I said, well, okay, well, you're pretty stoic. You live it, but I'm glad to hear that envy there and that, that, little bit lack of self-worth feeling popping up, right? And he emailed me after Stillness Speaks made Obstacles Away a bestseller. So he's a very big believer that your third book makes your first book a bestseller. That's how he's always taught it. But, you know, it's kind of like we all want to say we're an Amazon bestseller until somebody told me how you do it. I'm sure you guys know how you do it, right? You kindle it down to 99 cents. You put it over a 24-hour period. You get it to be a bestseller. <laughs> and it, you gave it away for... Oh, I've never done that. but uh, I've never me. done that one either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I've talked to people in the industry that tell me how to grow influencing, that's what you do. You reduce the price for 24 hours. You sell it for 99 cents. You flood your social media. A bunch of people buy it and it games the algorithm. Yeah, I'm done with that now. So that's what frustrates me, right? And so, but that's all driven to what your point, Adam, is about ego. It is core to who we are. We are truly not ego-driven people. I mean, we're, we can never really cut off the ego. The only place that I've ever seen is kind of the tall poppy syndrome. We're more social-based countries. I think you and I have actually had this conversation before at a conference or interact. It's like he whose head sticks up above the rest sometimes gets chopped off. And in our country, we're very capitalistic. We're very self-actualization based. We want to go and be number one. But there are a lot of countries that people have a lot of guilt about being the best because they want to have social improvement of everybody around them. That's a major conflict because the brain has three major drivers besides staying alive and procreating, which is has a drive for accomplishment, has a drive for social acceptance, and has a drive for stability. And those are core to who we are. Okay. And when we understand that we're always in conflict, the only people who 
in my opinion, the only people who seem to really be absent of ego and the only people who seem to have no negative thoughts or control their mind are Tibetan monks that spend 30 years in the mountains in silence trying to control their mind. Everything else with us is core to our human behavior. And ego pops up. But what we have to realize, we can't let ego run because we will lose empathy. We will lose compassion. But most of us have evolved over time to not be sociopaths because we tend to select them out of our society. Empathy drives human beings a lot. And that's what helps us. And most people care for other people. So when we have that negative feeling, that's the empathy in there. But we also have to look at is how can I improve myself? So there you go. So we're at a conflict with this. We want to improve and get better, but at the same time, we don't want to be above the tall poppy, as you said, that we don't want to be above everybody else because that can be selected out of. And, and you know how people like to drag drag you down as Correct. well if you are the tall yeah, poppy. Yeah, and, and we're okay having a leaderboard. We just, most humans don't want to have a leaderboard at the expense of integrity. The ones that are willing to do it without integrity, they'll eventually get chopped off. The old thought process in like looking at psychological profiles in the old, what we call the MMPI2, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the second version of it, it was a 565 question assessment that was used a whole lot decades ago. But the interesting thing is psychologists, politicians, attorneys, physicians, and serial killers had the very same, almost identical profiles. Because sometimes you have to make decisions at the expense of other human beings so it's the old philosophical thing. If you could kill one person to save a million, would you do it? It's the philosophy side. Human beings is, you know, we were driving yesterday and we kind of live in a little, there's some mountain hills and we were driving its first couple cold days and the deer were moving, right? And some guy hit a deer and there was, it was a young doe. It was in the middle of the road and there was a lady out in the middle of the road petting it. And everybody something, my wife asked me, she was like, are we just that empathetic as humans? I said, yeah. I said, there's probably some hunter here going, I'm going to kill it to take it out of its misery. And we may see that's barbaric, but that's truth was probably the right answer. But the woman that was sitting there petting it was probably thinking, how can I get it to a vet to save its broken leg? The reality is it probably needed to be destroyed because it got hit. But that's the battle we face, right? We do that all the time, right? I mean, that's why if you study like charitable giving and things like that, right? They're high. There's one political party that tends to give more charitable giving than another. And it tends to be the Republican Party tends to give more in charitable giving. Now, I know somebody's going to argue and say, oh, that's not true. Okay, it's historic. And the reason is, is it tends to be which side is more capitalistic. Republican Party is more capitalistic. Make more money, make sure you give back. Democrat side, which is more liberal thinking, is more like we got to help each other so that charitable giving is done in a different way. It's not that they're not charitable. It's just you have to just understand how you see both sides. If you had to, hopefully I'm not simplifying this too much, but you know, for golfers who are facing anxiety before they get on the course or, or on the course, are there any tried and true coping mechanisms that you work with with your players or is it specific to each person? Like, you know, we always try and give people some takeaways in an episode of, of something that can they can work on. Again, if I've simplified that too much, my apologies. But no, no, no. So my favorite is, you know, make sure you breathe. Okay. If you ever sat next to a person who's afraid to fly, tell them to breathe. Okay. Uh, breathing. Okay. Nobody breathes. Yes. Breathing does help. Yes, it does. Yes, it does help. But we have to use it as a tool, not as the answer. 
in the last chapter of the book, I called the five A's. This is a nice little way that I've always addressed it. Number one is we got to have awareness. And awareness without judgment is acceptance, right? I want to be aware that I'm anxious today. The biggest mistake that we make when we're anxious is we try to find out why, because we have to resolve the threat. Well, when we start searching for why, we're going to go on a pretty long journey and maybe never find the outcome because our mind is going to take that energy and continue to poke holes in everything. So what I try to get people to do is to be aware of it and to look at it from a what perspective. What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? What are the negative thoughts? Non-judgmentally describe them. So let's say somebody's getting anxious about to go to the first tee. What are you feeling? Okay. Where do you feel it? Well, I, I get it tight in my chest, my hands. I can't feel my hands. We had a, at our club, Sepp Strzok is a member. And last night he had a Ryder Cup fireside chat with Mark Blackburn. And they were talking about it. He goes, man, I couldn't feel my arms and my hands at the first tee at the Ryder Cup. Sweet. There's nothing wrong about that. But we just have to know it. So if I know that somebody has pressure, stress, anxiety, competitive angst, is impacting us physically, mentally, decision-making process, and grit, then I can know. It's like, okay, if you can't feel your hands, then we're going to take a deep breath or two and we're going to squeeze the living hell out of our hands. And then exhale, we're just going to wiggle our fingers. We're not going to try to relax our grip pressure. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to squeeze it in. If somebody can't feel their extremities, we're going to take hard, fast practice swings. In other words, we're going to lean into it. And so what I like them to do is be aware. I want them to find an anchor. An anchor is usually something physical that it's like it allows and resets the mind to where they are. Right here, right now. Okay. I'm on the first tee. I'm nervous. Sweet. Okay. What's my anchor? You know, I always pull on my glove. I pull on my hat right here, right now. Number three is we're going to take clear, definitive action towards something. So what happens is the mind always wants to go to negative and preventative. Because if you ask most players why they do a pre-shot routine, they're going to tell you it's to prevent something. Well, if I do this, then I don't do that. I want them to say, look, when I lick my lips, man, I smash it. Sweet. Then put your chapstick on, my man. Put it on. Okay? So take clear action. I'm going to take this down the right side. So for me, when I'm nervous, I tee it down a little bit. I'm very steep with my driver. I'm actually like six down with my driver. I know. I know you guys are going to be like, Jesus, man. But I smash driver, <laughs> okay? You can ask Blackburn. I smash driver. I've been that way for a long time. I have a strong grip. I have a ba- I have a limited stance because you know, I had to, I have, now I have two fake hips. But I had limited mobility, and I just feel like it keeps my left side driving through the ball. I don't care if I take a little divot after I hit the ball. I know what my launch angle is. I know where the ball's going. It's going to go pretty straight. It's going to go far. But I'm going to take clear action and I may cut it. So I'm going to play the ball up in my stance a little bit. I'm going to tee it down and I'm going to smash it. Okay. Then I'm going to adapt. I know that I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I'm going to adapt. Okay. Which means I may walk a little slower. I may move a little slower. I'm allow myself to be flexible. And then last, I'm going to reserve analysis for a later date. I'm not going to analyze in the heat of the moment. You're saying try not to or don't analyze during competition. Does this include practice rounds as well or just when you're in the heat of the battle? That's not really competition. They're not proving grounds. They're to collect information on the golf course. Golfers drive me crazy. Like if, if somebody said, define and design a major plan, my major plan would be we would go to, let's say, let's use Augusta National. We'd go to Augusta National on Thursday and Friday the week before. We leave, come back on Monday, we'd practice on Tuesday, 
have a practice round on Tuesday. Wednesday, we'd come in and practice in the morning, hit some balls, practice, putt, walk the course, maybe with a wedge, and then go watch a movie and get away. That's, see, that's what other sports do, right? So as we're recording this, it's a Friday. College football's tomorrow. They're not running complex offenses and hitting on Friday before the football game. Well, how are they going to be ready? Because they've done the work, right? They understand that competition is a dynamic interplay, interchange. So a practice round is to evaluate, not to evaluate yourself and how you're going to play. Like there's no predictive value of that whatsoever, unless you just really suck with your swing and your movement right now. So I don't want us to analyze there because in fact, first of all, I don't really see the value. I mean, a practice round is to go out and learn the golf course, your angles, your lines, your putting and your chipping. If you want to have a few chipping games or putting games, I'm fine with that. For the most part, we're just learning things. Okay. Moving on the course. Okay. But we're in competition. Our brain is in a full competitive mode. It's not in evaluation mode. So when we kind of go through with this complex interaction and complex evaluation, most of that is internally focused. And it's poking holes in ourselves. And I don't want players to be analyzed. Why am I missing it right? Okay. If you understand the work that you do and the foundations of your golf swing, okay, and you understand... Great teaching is going to teach around each player's two to three indicators of their success in their swing, in my opinion. We're going to be focused. If you're working with an instructor, they're going to work on the same two or three things with you every single time. Well, if you understand that the ball's squirting out right, you don't need to evaluate it. You just know. And when, when I was pitching, we had the four fixes. You had to understand how to correct yourself out on the mound. And golfers get caught up in like, I don't understand why. You know, Now it's squirting way right. It's like, okay. What are your foundations of your success? What are your indicators? Instead of evaluating, let's make sure we're keying into these. We're anchored in and we're keying into these action steps. And that's why I don't want us to evaluate. We're not in the best frame of mind. In fact, I don't want players to evaluate until three hours after they're done. And one of the reasons is players will text me. It's like, oh, that was the worst day of my life. And I'm like, I hate getting the text message or the voice memo immediately after a round of golf. Because it's not rational. They're just coming out of the competitive environment. And now, I mean, their heart and soul and egos on the line and they're putting their, I mean, they're putting it out there, man. They're, they're doing their best and everybody's out there is just, you know, like I had to battle today. I mean, I fought my ass off and people are like, well, I mean, my short game saved me. Well, that's why you have a short game. Well, I didn't hit it real good. Obviously you hit it good enough. And even if you have a terrible day, it's going to boil back down to one to two maybe three inflection points that it gets you where you did not respond. You did not manage the change of momentum or you did not handle the pressure influence. So instead of everything sucks, which is how we tend to evaluate things in the heat of the moment, let's take a step back and say, and if you keep a course book, take a little note card, put it in there and say to be evaluated at the end. Why do I keep missing drives left? Okay. Write that down. More than likely after two or three hours, you look back and go, yeah, I realized I was aiming too far right and I was covering it. I mean, we're just a lot smarter when we're not in the heat of the moment. So you said having those two or three, you said inflection points, that's so that they're more strategic. They're places, and this is me working in other sports, but you can always look back at any round or any game where you're like, there was a moment where the game outcome kind of shifted. So if you take a look at golf, right? How often is somebody playing where they hit a ball in the trees and it kicks out in the fairway? That's a pretty big inflection point. Now, they may not have taken advantage of it, but what happens is when a player makes a mistake, 
they try to press, they push, they take a mistake and they compound it. The inflection point right there would be, you know what? I've just made a mistake. I'm in trouble. I need to pitch out to 100 yards. I'm really good with my wedges. So instead of trying to capitalize on it and hit this stupid cut you know, that I can't stop a ball on the green with, you know, how about I just slow it back down, chip out to 100 yards and rebuild momentum? In other words, I took a punch, but I didn't go down. But golfers, because we're trying to play these perfect rounds of golf and our best rounds of golf ever and all this other stuff, because in theory, where there's really no competitor, what happens is they they compound mistakes and those moments you look back and you're like, well, it was right there on four. I had a plugged lie in a bunker and I was ticked. I tried to hit a miraculous shot and had 55 feet and three putt. It made double versus, hey, plug lies are going to happen. They're going to happen. They totally suck. We play a game on an imperfect surface, okay? And you hit a really good shot in there. You got totally screwed, totally screwed, okay? If the ball doesn't plug, it's probably a very simple up and down. You got plugged with almost no lie. How can I make a bogey from here, not a double? All right, and slowing it down and realize I can take a punch and keep going. If you're going to get the ball in position to score, you're going to have opportunities to make birdies and get it back. Or for some of us, to make pars and get it back. Even though I hate the terminology, get it back. But we're still going to have chances to score. But we don't need to go changing our mechanisms and all the other factors that go with it just because something doesn't feel right. And sometimes, sometimes we get our ass totally kicked by golf. Sometimes that happens too. Well, yeah. (laughs) So from a technical perspective, I mean, even as an instructor, I'm not big on being really mechanical with the swing. We boil a lot of things down here to three core principles of contact the ground in the right place, contact the center of the face and control within reason the club face direction, or at least look for patterns within there. So in terms of the analysis part, what are your thoughts on, say, I know when I'm I'm playing that if an error occurs, it will tend to be a pattern. You know, even if I'm warming up on the day, it will tend to be, all right, I'm hitting out the toe today and everything's a little bit chunky. Is that level of analysis okay? That's fine because that's understanding yourself. So when we pitched at LSU, we had to be able to work ourselves out of a jam before we got to pitch in big games. Because my coach's answer is I didn't have time for you to walk the bases loaded with your head up your ass trying to figure it out. So we would study and he was like, it, when a pitcher misses the ball up and in, arm side high, it's usually because one major mechanical flaw, the left side flies open too fast for a right-handed thrower, arm drops, ball gets hand gets under ball, ball goes up. So what's the correction to that? Well, you bite on your left shoulder. So that's hard to do, but it's hard to have the awareness to go, wait a minute, I've just thrown two balls up and in, bite my left shirt and hit the right knee. Okay, a breaking ball went up. We had we had all these. So for me, what are my fixes in the game of golf, right? Okay. Well, I tend to allow my backswing to get too long and then I slide off the ball and I get ahead of it. And then that be, that's a problem. So my fixes are I like to have great ball placement on my on my shots. I like to feel like I'm taking a three-quarter backswing. Okay? And I want to feel and I, I know this doesn't you guys are probably going to die, but I like to feel like my hands are in front of the club face. And my right hand is squared impact. Now, that has nothing to do with technique. That's just my feel. Now, I don't try to do that on every swing. But I know that if I'm going to make a mistake, 85 to 90% of my screw-ups are going to come from one of those three breaking down. I get bad ball position. I take the club back too far. Or I don't keep my hands in front of the club face. Okay, If there's another problem, then I'll go see my guy Blackburn and we'll get it fixed. But that's usually what it is. So if I'm out there, I've got to be like, hey, 
here's my, I call it a first aid kit. Here's my first aid kit. So I'm fine with that of knowing of like, hey, look, these are my corrections. But the worst thing that happens is somebody goes, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Okay, now we're going down a dark hole. Stop it. Stop, 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 stop. No, I mean, that's absolutely in line with what we talk about a lot. I mean, our, our collective goal on the show is to just help people coach themselves in the moment. And I agree with you. It's not, you can't start going down the black hole of whatever you watched on YouTube videos to save you on the course. You need to be able to, through practice, identify like the type of practice we love doing, like club face control is a big problem for golfers. You're either too closed, too open. And if you see a pattern of a lot of shots going to the left on the course, well, you need to be prepared to get that club face a little bit more open. Some days, as you said, some days you stink and you can't fix it. Other days you, you can intervene. But yeah, I think that that's whether you're competing or playing a normal round of golf, having a rational intervention that you know has a higher chance of success is absolutely you need it in your in your toolkit, whatever you want to call it, because you can feel like you're on an island out there. Just like I always found, you know, I've spoken to other athletes. I think two positions in sports that can be similar to golf are a pitcher and even a place kicker in football, because you're initiating the you're initiating the the action, so to speak. And there's a lot of solitude to that. <laughs> you're not working with teammates. It makes it particularly difficult. Well, a dear friend of mine is a guy by the name of Al Del Greco who played 20 years in the NFL as a kicker and won the Lake Tahoe event, right? And now he's the golf coach at Samford in town. We've had this conversation with Blackburn about it, of like the kinematic sequence of pitching, field goal kicking, and golf. It'd be interesting to see him because the reason I've always thought about it that way is also if I take a baseball hitter and I give him a fungo. A fungo is the long skinny bat that you teach him how to hit ground balls with. Uh, you do pitchers hit thousands of them a day for practice to help the infielders. They're going to – left side is going to fly open. They're going to load on their back leg and they're going to hit these big banana balls. Okay, And infielders don't want them to do it. But pitchers have to learn how to do it and you stay up on your left side. There's a technique associated with it. And I swear to God, it's similar to the golf swing. And that's why I think a lot of great pitchers have a very good golf game because there's a certain action that they do both throwing and that that allows it to repeat. But there's also to your point, which is it's an initiation sport. It's not a reaction sport. I will say this in baseball, the best athletes on the field are the pitchers. But it's it's also because they are they're out there and they're they're having to create the action from zero. And pitchers do struggle with mechanics, right? You you lose your release point. But as a pitcher, you cannot be out there and lose your release point and allow the game to stop. You have to find a way to get it done. What makes pitching different than baseball, we were in Scottsdale this past year and we were doing a pro-am, you know, the pro-am on Wednesday and we were walking the course and one of the guys, one of the ams in our group was a Cy Young award winner in baseball. He asked me, he said, you know, what's the, what do you see as the difference between baseball and golf? And I said, well, let me ask you this. When you're pitching and you don't have your slider today, what do you do? And he's like, well, I mean, I just find other ways to compete. I said, in golf, if you feel like you don't have your driver, you keep hitting it until you can find it. In baseball, I don't keep throwing the slider. He'll put it on the shelf for a couple innings and then bring it back out later. And more than likely, it's refound itself. Golfers are going to sit out there and be like, well, I've got to find it. I mean, this is why I'm here. I've done all this work. It's like, no, you don't. To that point, let me ask you this question. One of the things that gets me when I watch Instagram golf is, and sometimes I see this on tour too, we teach the driver. And we track man it, foresight it, whatever it is, right? 
on the things that we're measuring on the range, how many of those are equatable to what they do on the golf course? In what sense? I mean, like the, the measurement of like how much you're hitting up on it, you know, club path, like the that type full of stuff. Go nonstop, let the dog eat thought process. And the thought process is going to be different because you're not thinking about the numbers. Your attention is probably more on the target. The what if, like the mistakes, the watch outs. Okay. So we teach on the range this just let the dog eat and get it out there. And then the first time you've got a place where you got a little trouble on the left side, now they're all restrictive. Okay. So what you see in baseball with velocities, you see these guys take 10 crow hops and throw up against a, bla- a wall and they go 100 miles an hour. That's awesome. And any pitcher goes, okay, so what? Who cares? Can you throw strikes? Can you make the ball move? Can you get guys out? I don't care if you throw it 104 miles an hour over the plate. Somebody's going to hit it. Okay. And one of the things that I think every player should have is a fairway finder. And you should come out of the gate with your – a fairway finder is not like 85% rhythm. I hate that. It's – this is how I know that 85 to 90% of the time I know where this ball is going. Okay? And so, for me, I tee it down. Okay, I already shared that. There's going to be a point where I can let the dog eat a little bit during the course of a round. There's a hole that fits my eye, whatever. Other than that, I'm playing balls to be in position because really, where am I going to pick up? Eight yards? It's 24 feet. Come on. But a ball in play means a lot. Now, I know drivers are easier to hit than they used to be, all this other stuff. But that's what happens when we're trying to overanalyze is that we're, we're like, I got to fix it. It's like, we're not playing golf. We're playing swing as freaking hard as you can and try to hit it out there as far as you can because that's what you've been practicing on the range because there's no consequences. Okay. But can you hit a ball that you know you can get in play? Absolutely. Know this ball is going to be in play. People would learn how to do that. Then maximizing numbers, they would be better off in my opinion. I just probably pissed off every golf instructor there is. To your point, I think there needs to be different contexts with it. So I compete all the time. So I know the difference of the driver's swing when I have, you know, I've got a launch monitor where I'm optimizing my launch angle, all that stuff. But I know that when I get into competition, I'm struggling. Like there needs to be plan B if I can't let it rip and keep it in play. So I agree with you. But I think in terms of productive practice and the context of it, like, yes, there can be training where you're going as hard as you possibly can to kind of keep the swing speed, you're developing the skill of speed. And that's without the context of trying to keep the ball on the map. And you know that that is for that Correct. specific it's purpose-driven training. Yep. And exactly. And and we talk all about this a lot on the show, but you know, let's say you were in a simulator, like I'd say another example of that where you're switching gears is like, all right, you've done that practice, go play a simulated course. Like I actually think that's fantastic practice because you're giving some consequence to each shot. That's, you know, Adam's written a wonderful book about practice. I have some of it in my book. We talk about a lot is that the context of what you're practicing. And if you can introduce some type of consequence and intent, I, I love that word. Absolutely agree with you on that. Because when you don't, where you have the mismanaged expectations of both environments and you go into the performance environment, you are a deer in headlights and you have no fix for when you hit three balls out of bounds. Well, think about it like learning math, right? Nobody liked to do math homework. But you'd learn a concept in class. The teacher would share some different ways with you. And then they'd assign the homework at night. It was always do the odds one to 30. And you could always break it down. The first 10 were, were learning the structure of how to do the operations. The next five or so would be about how to, they would kind of change the operation a little bit and you had to apply it. And then the last four were always those godforsaken word problems. 
but those were real world applications to apply the skills without concrete identifiers. It was the way to apply. We have to spend more time in word problems. But the problem is, and this is a whole other thing is like block versus random. If you got no block practice, you don't have, you don't do the operations well. So you can't go. So it's got to be the intention of everything that you're doing is exactly right. If I go out to Alabama football practice, the first part of practice is going to be footwork, handwork every day. They're working. Okay. Then they're going to compete. Then they're going to go back into game implementation, all that. They don't just sit there and go, huh, what was wrong yesterday? We got to fix that today. Golfers are the worst practicers in the history of any sport. There's no sport worse in practice than a golfer. Do you think it's always been my thought? I played a lot of different team sports as a kid. And I think most team sports, as you just talked about, the environment they create for that football team is they're going from scrimmages to, which is a great golfers don't love to do scrimmages when they practice. They love to repeat. So I think most team sports, especially when you have different coaches, lead you to more productive practice where in golf, it's like, you're just on your own. You just go figure it out unless you're you're getting instruction. I think the nature of the game makes you want to go because we all know how good it feels when it's awesome. Yeah. You just want to keep hitting that seven iron over and over again really well. <laughs> and I think golf is that one sport that we can't replicate true competitive pressure. I don't think we can. I can't replicate 100,000 people in a college football stadium, but I can replicate the intensity pretty close. Basketball, no problem. Yeah, basketball, like having, you know, playing five on five. Yeah. And that the burden falls on the golfer. And most people take the path of least resistance when they practice and they want to make it easy and comfortable. Okay. But think about also why, though. Let's say you and I have an awesome practice. We're going to go practice out on the golf course. We're going to get a money game. What's usually the money game? Usually three way Nassau, right? (laughs) That's the one I like to play. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Most players are going to go out there and they're going to play a four ball game. Yeah, there's four like teams. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah. You got two teams, best ball, yeah. three way Nassau, front back. What's the burden of a bogey there? In match play, I think it's reduced because, again, you have a teammate and sometimes it won't even count if someone made a par. So you just pick up your ball. Exactly. You don't grind. So now we're out there and we're like, well, I, mean, I had six birdies yesterday. It's like, yeah, because you were out there hunting birdies. You shot three under, whatever, because bur- now all of a sudden we go to a competition. Oh, and bogey yeah. more than a birdie does. There's, there's no greater teacher. So yeah. we ain't well, there's no greater seen. teacher than a stroke play tournament. I'll tell a lot of people that. Like you really want to hundred want to go out on the mental island, go play a stroke play event, and then I actually think it makes and you're out there by well, yourself. It, yep. I think for some people it could ruin their enjoyment of golf, but if you have the right mindset and you're even if it's in club championships, you're playing qualifiers. Like I think at the minimum trying it and using it as a learning experience will make the rest of golf seem that much easier in relation to it. It's it is a wonderful teacher if you have the right mindset, in my belief. And I've done a ton of it well, in my life. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's say this then. Dads, moms with junior golfers, your kid's not gonna play great every week. Your kid is not gonna shoot their low round every week. You have to allow them to see the struggle as some of the greatest teacher they're going to have. So don't try to protect them from having that happen. Going back to a point you were talking about earlier, you said that golfers make the worst practices. So what would you say? How would you elaborate on that? Why are golfers the worst practices out of most sports? They're always trying to fix the problem of yesterday and trying to find the band-aid. So they leave feeling good. I and I, you know, I don't remember how many practices I left at LSU where I felt better. May have felt tired and worn out and felt accomplished, but I may not have felt relieved. Okay. Golfers want to feel like they feel relieved. Look, golf practice 
we sell tokens to it so people go relax at night. I mean, there's no other sport that has that either, right? But golfers are bad practitioners because they're always chasing the fix so that, oh, I fixed it. Now tomorrow will be better. They very rarely have clear intention of what they want to do. They very rarely ever have a written down practice plan of what they want to accomplish. They very rarely have indicators or boundaries of success that they're going to execute over time. Okay. And they never chart progress. So how do we know we're getting better? How do we know that we actually improved? How do we know that we've done stuff, right? And so I think the problem is, is that if I could just fix this swing, if I could just fix my driver right now, I'd play better. You don't know that. You may hit it better, but you may not score any better. Okay. And so golfers, they're built to correct a problem. And I just think it's inherent in what makes it the, the game so addictive, so mind-blowing, so freaking exhausting. And at the same time, can't wait to get out there tomorrow and do it. It's the ultimate intermittent schedule of reinforcement if you go to pure operant conditioning in psychology. Psych 101, right? It's intermittent. It's like going to Vegas. You pull on the lever. The difference is we have a perception that that it's like blackjack players. They actually think they're good blackjack players when it's just the odds of the house, man, <laughs> just the odds. Right. I've written an article on uh, Skinner box pigeons. Yes. And how similar to yeah, golfers. that's <laughs> golf is the ultimate intermittent schedule reinforcement. You do everything right. You got ass handed to you. You were okay. Somewhat. You actually played really well, but we have to look at the overall bigger versions of it. And it's, it's funny. I mean, it's just, Listen, I, if I wasn't out for eight weeks and couldn't play golf, I'd be out there tomorrow. Ready to go again. Well, let's go. Let's do it. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so on the way of making practice more productive for golfers and transferring to the actual course or even transferring to competitive situations, what strategies would you implement? Would it be more random practice? I mean, obviously, we've talked about how we need some block practice, but. I think we need block. I like a formula of 30% block. 70% random and some of that random is going to be on the golf course. Okay. But I want it written down. I want it strategic. I want it organized. I want to know what we're doing. Hitting five footers on a chalk line to say you're good at five footers, that's worthless to me. Okay. But I have to hit five footers on a chalk line to know that my putter face is coming through and the ball starting online. But I've got a drill that I, I mean, it's not any new drill. I just have players do it. It's eight stations around the hole from five feet. You have to make three in a row to move to station two from station one. And the goal is to make 24 in a row. At any point you miss, you have to start all the way over. And players will call me and they'll be like, man, this, this drill's destroying my confidence. And I'm like, nah, I can't, it can't do that. It's the fact that you really didn't have confidence to start off with because some of the best putters in the world will look at it and say, how long is the average length of time to complete this drill? And I'm like, usually the first time it's about an hour and 15 minutes. And, you know, Brian Harmon was one of his longtime client of mine. He texted me one day and goes, I did it in 31 minutes. I'm like, well, that's why he's one of the best putters in the world. Okay. But what I'll ask a kid is I'll say, look, just stop after an hour and a half. Put your headphones in. Stop after an hour and a half. Man, I didn't get past three stations. I'm like, well, okay. Well, no wonder why there's a problem with your butting. Okay. You can't make more than six or seven three-footers in a row or five-footers in a row. And I'm like, okay, well, let's get to work. Let's get back after it. And most people quit doing it because they're tired of seeing misses. They never see how many they made in that period. They never see it out there for an hour and a half. I made 300 five-footers. 
the only way I can get them to make more five footers is to sit out there with a drill that beats their head against the wall. And then they quit it because it's hard. That drill's good because it's not it's not breaking down overall performance into the three elements of speed, read, and line, where you go off and you work on one in isolation. It's putting them all together, adding on that pressure as well. I like that kind of practice a lot. And I'm like, if I really destroy somebody's confidence, move to three feet. Okay. But I'll never forget, I had this LPGA player just text me because this, this drill's just destroyed me. I was like, you're 130th in putting on the LPGA tour before you tried this drill. I don't know. Maybe the it's you that's getting its butt kicked. Maybe if we focused on making more five-footers, our three-putt percentage wouldn't be as high either. And it's funny, right? The best players will look at it and go, I'm going to beat this drill. Like, I'm going to own this drill at some point. This drill's going to be mine. That's cool to hear. One of the points that you sent us was talking about how training your golf swing might be hurting you. And we've done a three-hour podcast on swing your swing versus change your swing. We've done lots of different things on this. And we see both sides of the spectrum as well. You know, there's a time to make changes to your swing. But what are your thoughts on mechanical changes or why it might be hurting you? Well, I think there's a time to make mechanical improvements, 100%. And I think we need to try to improve mechanically. I think we have to look at what are we capable of doing? What is our body able to do? Can we actually see the improvement? Is the law of diminishing returns worth it? Are we going to get that much improvement out of making a change? I mean, this is a conversation like Blackburn and I had about me. He's like, you're not going to practice enough to change your super strong grip. So let's just keep hitting it. Like you're really good with it. You're fine. Don't change it. I think sometimes we have to ask that just because something's off doesn't mean it's not right. It's just sometimes it's like, I'm not willing to impact that. But I think, like I said in the earlier part, because we measure it, we we tend to chase it. But the important thing too is you have to remember that the ultimate goal in golf is shooting the lowest score you possibly can. There's not an indicator of how you did it. It's did you shoot the, and people are like, well, it's going to improve consistency. Is it? Is it really? Is it really? Because if somebody has a very funky little move, but they can repeat it, that's sometimes better than having a perfect move that they can't repeat. Exactly. I mean, we talk about how different combinations can work. Like you have a strong grip and you may have other things in your swing that help you to stop that face from closing down or or make that strong grip work. It's always the theory of, oh, well, if you work it more towards textbook, you'll be more consistent. But people never actually question that. It's like, well, well, why? Why would that be more consistent? Just because it looks a certain way? And reality is just a different way of doing it. In trying to get from where you are to that more textbook look, you can do a lot of damage as well because you're having to learn a new set of matchups now, a new set of combinations. And you have to be able to do it under the gun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's the toughest part, right? Is, yeah, I can do it out here on the range. That's awesome. But guess what we got to do too? When I get up on that first tee, I got to know where the ball's coming out, what window it's coming out of. My example of that when I was pitching is when I had a 3-2 count, I had to know what pitch I needed to throw to get, a, get the guy out. I had to know that I could trust that pitch in that moment. That is, I think, one of the questions in golf because every player and even up to the pro level is this constant question like, is what I have good enough or do I need to make some type of change? And usually that that conversation goes to a mechanical perspective. And 
that's like the risk reward. That's why I always say it's like the question. It's like, we don't know, you know, the grass always could seem greener, but we talk about swing changes a lot. The time it takes to get comfortable in practice through on the range, on the course, then you, as you say, adding layers of pressure. Is it the pressure of just playing a Saturday round with your friends? Or are you going to play in tournaments? And I think that's the hardest question to answer in golf is that, is what you have good enough? Can you make small tweaks or is there some type of breakdown that needs to occur? And Adam and I are not a huge fan of the breakdown, but sometimes if you stand more to gain, like if you think in the context of the beginner to intermediate player, yeah, I think for those players, sometimes if they're newer to the game and they've got a really bad pattern, then like, yeah, we might have to break this apart because what you've got isn't giving you functional results versus you look at the more seasoned veteran player and you're like, you're doing pretty well with that strong grip. You know, the weak grip might technically answer better questions, but you might not trust it under the gun. And that's, I think that's what makes golf such a fascinating question is like, you're constantly, your mind is fighting against these things because the game is so variable and you, you have these slumps where you're like, well, do I need to make a change to get a lot better? And sometimes uh, we don't really know the answer to that all the time. Correct. And that, that's what makes it tough. Right. I'm not a big fan of like the Sam Putt Lab because I don't really know if zeroing out the putter is actually any more beneficial. I mean, if you hit it with an open club face, but you hit it in the exact same spot every time, I think that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Well, sometimes those analysis, yeah, they like reverse engineer great putters and they're like, well, this is a very idiosyncratic move, but look at the results. <laughs> like it's, it's hard to argue with the results. So great. <laughs> I've even had where people are less repeatable with what they do, but they're creating repeatable outcomes. And Sam Putler would be a good example of that. I've seen some good players who on a left to right slope will pull it up the slope. And then you stick them on a right to left slope and they push it up the slope. And they're very good again, the ball in the hole, yet they're actually producing less consistent techniques as well. I just say that, you know, um, to add to that, if something doesn't look textbook, or as you said, Brad, if something has a funky move to it, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Nope, not at all. Somebody at some point put chicken on waffles with maple syrup and it turned out to be a hell of a dish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what my takeaway is. We see that in lots of other sports as well. Was it Michael Johnson's 400 meter running style? And I mean, Jim Furyk's swing is, is obviously the answer that people pull out for golf all the time. But it's not to say that we're going in and teaching funky moves into someone's swing, but the opposite end of the spectrum needs to be analyzed more. Should we teach those funky moves out for the sake of just making it look a certain way? Whereas the reality is you might be able to just take what you do and make it work better exactly which is what we're big fans of if you want to give again tell people how to get the book where to get the book and, and your, your closing statements on anxiety well listen i wrote the book because i wanted people to have a tool that they could learn they could learn to take the lead in the dance with anxiety okay it was funny you know i the working title of the book was kick anxiety's ass i have had anxiety my entire life my oldest daughter has two and Brett Basham, who works in my office, has as well. And Brett and my daughter, Logan, I sent in a manuscript to them to read and I, I changed the title. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I don't want to you know, use a strong word and all that. And they're like, well, your favorite book is a book called The No Asshole Rule. It's a great book on business. And I'm like, exactly. And they're like, no, people who have anxiety, we need to learn to kick its ass. So I want us to take power back over anxiety, but it's never going to leave us. Okay. But when we realize that we can stand up to anything in our world, we become powerful. 
and we can face what's in front of us. I would be honored if people read the book. I self-publish. I told you guys, I self-publish all my own stuff. I've never submitted a book or a manuscript to a book agent. I'm not trying to be the next New York Times bestseller. I just want the right books in the right hands of the right people. I hope they resonate. If they do, let me know. If they don't, let me know. You can buy it on Amazon. It's the best place to get it. If you like it, leave a review. If you don't like it, leave a review. That's fine. Just leave a review. Okay. I hope the book resonates with people to realize that they can manage the uncontrollable force in their life. Anxiety will run away from us if we don't understand it. But we have to be standing and realizing that we can face what's ever in our life if we face it with the tools that we know we have. You're not broken. You're not diseased. You're not failure. You're not incapable of success just because you have anxiety. Let's start using it and using that energy to focus on things that can actually be constructive, developmental, and so forth. So, I appreciate you talking about it. I know a lot of people love to lock these things away in a dark box and never bring it to light. So, appreciate you being honest about it. All right. We got to let you go. Anywhere else Thank people you. can find you online? Obviously, social media at Dr. Brett McCabe on all the social media platforms. Leave comments. Let us know what we're doing. We have a show we do every week called Mental Game Live, which is you can get in and ask questions about the mental game for free. I mean, just on YouTube. So make sure you follow me there as well. Awesome. Adam, where can everyone find your stuff? AdamYoungGolf.com. And if you go to forward slash hacks, H-A-C-K-S, you can get a free ebook. And John, Ooh. where can people find you? Just check out the four foundations of golf. Like you, Brett, we are both self-published authors. So we appreciate everyone supporting our work. Yes. Thank you for the support of the show. And we will see you next time with a new episode. <laughs>